Matthew chapter 9, I'll be reading verses 18 through 38, but we'll be focusing particularly upon that last section, verses 35 through verse 38. Matthew 9, verses 18 to 38, please give your full attention to the word of God. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. For the past month and a half, our sermons on Sunday morning have been focused upon Oakwood's vision statement, which you'll find in your bulletin. That vision statement expresses the goal of our ministry, that we would all become oaks of righteousness, that Visual image of, an, of oaks of righteousness is important to our ministry because it is a picture to us of where the Lord is taking us. His goal for everything that we do is for us all to become strong, mature disciples of Jesus Christ as it is illustrated by that common biblical image of a tree planted by water, growing strong, bearing fruit, branching out. We've explored already three of the four characteristics of oaks of righteousness. That we are strong in worship, that we be strong in loving others well, and that we be strong in our discipleship, our loyalty and commitment to Christ as our Lord. 
Today we look at the final characteristic of a strong, mature disciple, an oak of righteousness, which is that we are to be strong in outreach, living a life of mercy towards others and living on a mission to spread the gospel. I suppose this seems like an opportune moment to inform you of the plan of the elders to reach our area with the gospel. The key to this plan is to train and equip and strategically position evangelists in influential places all through the community and throughout the area. To put trained evangelists on the faculty and in the administration and among the students of Penn State University. To put trained evangelists in the faculty and among the students of the local school districts. To put trained evangelists on the staff of the prominent companies and businesses of our communities. To put trained and equipped evangelists on the staff of the local hospital and medical facilities. To have trained and equipped evangelists strategically located in all of the neighborhoods and municipalities of our area. Park Forest, Bullsburg, Lamont, Tofftrees, Belfont, Port Matilda. The good news about the session's plan for outreach to the area is that it's already been accomplished. You've already been deployed. You are all in those key influential positions. All of you are spread throughout the communities and neighborhoods and workplaces and marketplaces of our area. All we need is for you to be faithful to fulfill your mission. And that's really what the focus of this message is about. It's not about strategies and plans and programs. It's about motivation. Because all we lack is a passion for the mission. All we lack is a desire and enthusiasm and a drive to accomplish what we've already been placed to do. In verse 37, Jesus asks us to open our eyes to see the opportunities. And that is my prayer for us this morning. That we would see, as he puts it, that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. As we've been going through these different main areas of the ministry of Oak, ministries of Oakwood, you've noticed probably that we're not laying out detailed programs. We are talking about what the nature of this calling is because we believe that the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to see the nature of your calling and the nature of your mission and the Holy Spirit will give you a heart to accomplish it, we will be successful in what we're called to do. The outreach of Oakwood is not going to be program-driven or staff-driven. It's going to be driven by the members of the church. It depends upon all of us seeing the opportunities where we work and where we live, where we play, where we shop, and where we study. And in this brief passage at the end of chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, Jesus shows us the two things that we need, all of us, to be successful in our mission. Jesus calls upon us to open our eyes and see two things. He uses two metaphors here. First of all, to see 
that the harvest is plentiful. And secondly, to see the sheep are harassed and helpless. If we see the need and we see the opportunity and the Holy Spirit gives us a heart to reach the people, we will be successful. Well, where do we get that motivation from? Well, as you've noticed, as I read through about half of the chapter 9 of Matthew, you see that there, Matthew is very, in a rapid fire uh, uh, sequence, is giving us kind of a summary of Jesus' ministry in general. It's a quick succession of miracles that he performs, a sampling of every type of miracle that he performed while he was on earth, raising the dead, healing long-term diseases, giving sight to the blind, casting out demons. But as you read through these wonderful supernatural events, I hope that you see that the main point wasn't for, Je wasn't for Jesus to come to alleviate physical suffering. If you just focus on the surface, it could be, you could think that that's what Jesus' ministry was all about, was just to come and, and to make people's earthly lives better, to make them healthier, to make them more prosperous. But if you read more carefully these lists, these, this list of miracles, what you'll see is that Jesus' purpose in doing those miracles was to spread the gospel of the kingdom. As it says in verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. The purpose of the miracles, the purpose of the healings, the purpose of the casting out were all, was ultimately to point people to the gospel of the kingdom. It was all about pointing to Jesus Christ. He was the king who had come to establish his kingdom. He was the Messiah who had come to bring ultimate deliverance. And these miracles were only meant to point to him as being the way, the truth, and the life. The miracles served the message of the kingdom. They were signs that were meant to point people to Christ, who he was and what he had come to do. And the goal was that they would put their faith in him. Trust in him. Jesus wouldn't let the woman who had the long-term bleeding issue to attribute her healing to a superstitious touch of his robe. He says to her, your faith in me has made you well. To the two blind men, he said, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, yes, we do. We believe in you. We trust in you. The purpose of it all was to, for sinners, lost, broken people, to put their faith in Christ. And that's the first lesson on outreach for us. Is that yes, there is a place, there's a necessity, a, a, a command for us to go out and do good works of mercy. To do works of what's popularly called today social justice. Yes, we are called to do those things and we must do them. But... If, we, if doing those good works among the needy people in our community doesn't lead to telling them the gospel, then it's all a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It has no eternal worth to it. Yes, 
Christ has come to bring healing, healing in body, but more importantly and more, a necessity, more of a necessity in this fallen world, he has come to bring spiritual healing, to reconcile us to our God, to give us forgiveness, to die for our sins, to give us redemption through his blood, to give us eternal life in his kingdom. That is our message and that is the goal of our outreach. In verses 35 through 38 then, this last paragraph of the chapter that we read, as we look at this summary of Jesus' ministry, it gives us a unique insight into his heart. And as we look at the heart of Christ as he fulfilled his mission, it gives us a picture of what our heart should look like. The first thing we must learn from looking at Jesus' heart and his mission is that to have a heart for the lost, we must see the lost the same way that Jesus sees them. In verse 36, it says that Jesus, as he looked at the crowds, and at this point, this is probably the high point of his quote-unquote popularity in his ministry, the high point of his draw, of his attraction of the crowds of the people of Israel. As he looked at these crowds, he saw them flocking to him, and he saw them literally as sheep. It says he saw them as harassed sheep. That's the first word used there in the Greek. They were harassed. The word literally meant flayed, beaten down. Harassed in the sense of being troubled, being distressed, being overwhelmed. It's an image from the shepherding calling that, that is a picture of sheep that are in constant fear, lacking peace, not able to lie down in green pastures because they're agitated, they're in fear, they're distressed, they lack peace, they're being chased. The second Greek word there to describe the sheep as Jesus saw these people is that they were helpless. The word literally means to be thrown down or scattered. And again, from the shepherding line of work, the images of, of a sheep that has wandered off from the flock is now injured or trapped in a pit or on the ledge of a cliff. A picture of broken people enslaved by their own sins and abused by the sins of others. And then finally, he calls them a sheep without a shepherd. Lost without a protector, without a provider, without a guide. That's what these Jewish crowds were like as Jesus saw them. In verses 33 and 34, it says the crowds marveled at Jesus' teaching and his good works. But the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. These were the ones appointed by God to be the shepherds of his people, but they had abandoned their people. In the Old Testament, those without faith, both inside of Israel and outside of Israel, were often compared to abandoned sheep. Exhausted, hungry, thirsty, exposed to their predators, abandoned by those spiritual leaders that should have been protecting them, feeding them, and guiding them. And sheep without protectors, without guides, are totally helpless. One of the probably the most classic passage on the failure of the shepherds is in Ezekiel chapter 34. 
There, God speaks to the shepherds of Israel, and he says this to them. He says, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. This is what Jesus saw when he looked at the crowds. This passage really resonates with me. In this day, as you read the headlines, you hear about those who proclaim themselves to be shepherds of the flock, but instead are being exposed to the world as those who abuse sexually and otherwise the sheep. Hear about shepherds who are exposed as domineering megachurch pastors. You hear about the proliferation of false shepherds, wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's just within the church. And outside the church, you don't have to look far to see people who have been abandoned by their political and spiritual leaders. Do you believe that the people around you need the Lord? I know you believe that in your theology, but I'm asking, do you believe it in your daily life? That nice neighbor that lives next door, that really impressive teacher in your classroom, that really charismatic coworker you have, do you believe that they really need the Lord? David Paulison, who's the director of Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, has written what he calls anti-Psalm 23. If you know the Psalm 23 of, written by King David, keep that in the back of your mind as you hear what David Pallison has written Describing a sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. Listen to this description. This is how that lost sheep would write this song. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. 
No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into the void? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death. And then I die. That's how Jesus looks at lost people. That's what he sees, not what the world sees. That's what he sees. We have to stop looking at people the way the world looks at them. The rich, the poor, the cool, the uncool, the powerful, the weak, the beautiful, the ugly. And see them as Jesus sees them. Lost and desperately needing Christ in their life. Secondly, to have that motivation that Christ has for the lost, we have to have the compassion of Christ. It says, when he looked at the crowds, he saw them as these lost sheep. It says he had compassion for them. Literally, that word in the original Greek is a fascinating word. It actually speaks of a deep ache in the deepest part of your gut. The word compassion in Latin means to suffer with. To see a need in someone else and enter into that suffering with them. Isn't that what God did for us? The Son of God saw us in our need and we use the word Emmanuel. It means God with us, but that just that's a clean way to say it. The down and dirty way to say it is he came down into our messy lives and he entered into our suffering with us. That's what compassion is. And you don't develop compassion from a distance. You have to be there with somebody to have compassion for them. You have to get to know them. You have to see the aches in their lives up close and personal. How often does your gut ache for the lost sinners around you? In some ways, we've become too insulated from the helpless and harassed people around us. It takes effort in this culture because we've been good in this culture at separating the harassed and helpless, the lost, from ourselves. But I think there's another problem in the sense that in some ways we're too exposed to the lost. If you spend any time on the internet, watching cable news, reading newspapers, if you're aware of what's going on, we are more aware of what's going on in the far reaches of the planet than any generation has ever been. We are exposed to, to needs of immigrants and, and people suffering in ISIS-held territories and in war zones and people that are starving in, in third, third world countries. We're exposed to this in ways, you know, 150 years ago, you didn't hear about these things except once in a blue moon. You, all you knew about was the, the needs in your own family, in your neighborhood, in your community. And the problem is we get so exposed to these needs, we honestly get overwhelmed. And we, our, our natural response to that is to retreat. It's too much. 
But we have to realize God's not calling us to meet all those needs. He's calling us to meet the needs of the people that we're close to. The people that are within our reach. The people that we can suffer with. The people that we can get involved in their lives. The people that we can see up close and personal what their aches are, what their pains are, what their sufferings are. Those are the people that we're called to reach. He has his people for those people on the other side of the planet. They're doing their work. Are you aching for the people that you're involved with day in and day out? We're not called to reach all the lost, just the ones that the Lord has placed in our lives. I pulled an email out of my file of a congregation member of my church in the suburbs of Philadelphia as I was thinking about this this week. I stuck this in a file because I thought, this is such a great picture of what evangelism really looks like. I mean, I think in my generation, if you'd asked me 30 years ago, as when I was a relatively new believer, young disciple of Christ, what, what does evangelism look like? I would have spit out an answer to you that would have sounded like what all the popular books and popular preachers and programs are saying, you know, the four spiritual laws, tracks, going door to door, standing on a street corner, having big outreach events at your church. That's what I would have thought evangelism looked like. No. Those things are good and they're fine and they have their place. It's a small place, I think, in the whole mission, but they have their place. Here's what evangelism looks like. Listen to this. Hi, Dan. I need to let you know about a couple that I've, has come into my life named Kevin and Lisa who need the Lord's help desperately. They live in a house that I purchased as an investment. They've been there since August and have been struggling to make ends meet for quite a while. Recently, Kevin got a physically demanding job, but after working for a week or two, he had to go to the hospital for pneumonia. He lost the job because he was out for nine days recovering. I believe the financial stress and the pneumonia has weakened his immune system to a point where his life may be in danger. He is now in the hospital for liver and kidney failure and is suffering from a skin disease, undiagnosed at this point, that is eating away at his hands, fingers, toes, and is spreading to his face and throughout his body. I drove him and his wife to the hospital and it looks bad. I don't know if he's going to live and they have no family or friends to help them. This family really needs food, prayer, and financial assistance. I'm going to go see him in the hospital tomorrow, and I want to keep you posted on his condition. We speak regularly about faith in Jesus Christ, and I have told him that sometimes the Lord strips us of everything so that we have no choice but to call out for his mercy. Frankly, we both thought that he had been to the very bottom, but we were both surprised that it could have gotten worse. If Kevin does recover and gets a job and keeps his home, he and Lisa will get their four-year-old son, Kevin Jr., back from child services. That's what evangelism looks like. That's compassion. That's getting involved in the life of somebody who's broken and has a really messy life. That's real evangelism. That's the evangelism that all of you are called to. All of you. But where do you get the compassion from? Because I think that's the real problem. We have those people in our lives. They're three doors down. They're two cubicles down at work. They're 
in the class that you're taking on Tuesday morning. Those people are in your life. The real issue is where do you get the compassion from? Where does it come from? Well, Jesus tells us. You get that compassion for the lost by praying for the lost and praying for those that are trying to reach them. Our first job in the harvest work is, as Jesus puts it, therefore to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The first point that's important to stress there is that he is the Lord of the harvest, not you. He is the Lord of the harvest. It's his job. He has that job under control. He's responsible for it, and he will finish it. No part of the harvest will be lost. That's the message back to take you back to Ezekiel 34. After talking about how the shepherds were not doing their job, he's saying, I will shepherd my people. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 11 of Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search, out, search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture on the mountain of the heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and I will and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Or as our Lord Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me and I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is the good shepherd of the flock of his sheep. He will bring his people to himself because of his compassion for the lost. He provides the means as well as the end. He provides the ability to see the need to us. He provides the compassion to us to reach the lost and he provides the strength and the courage to reach out. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples here. He tells them first, he doesn't say pray for the lost. He says, pray for the Lord to send workers into the harvest. And you think, okay, you know, as a good disciple, say, Lord, okay, you want me to pray for missionaries to go to Africa? You want me to pray for somebody to reach the homeless in downtown State College? You want me to pray for people to reach the, the students at Penn State? Yeah, I'll pray for that, Lord. I'll pray for, the, for, for you to send people to all those areas. Well, who are you going to send? Well, what's interesting is you go to beginning of chapter 10. Go to the very next verse in chapter 10. Verse 1. And Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits and to heal every disease. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out, go to the lost sheep of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. They pray for, they pray, Lord, send somebody to those people. And then the Lord says, okay, go. I'm sending you. And I think there's a reason why he worded the command that way, why 
he, he, he handled it that way. Because if we pray for the lost and pray for the lost to be reached and pray for those who are reaching the lost, you know what happens eventually? You start reaching the lost. You develop that heart for the lost. You develop that compassion for the lost. Prayer is the means by which the Lord fills our hearts with that compassion for those people in need. It is prayer. It is so crucial to the work of evangelism. And if evangelism isn't happening in your life, and if evangelism is not happening in the life of our church, it's because we're not praying for it enough. That's simple. Praying for the lost and for the success of the mission transforms us into evangelists. The first heart that needs to be changed before he changes the hearts of your neighbors and coworkers and fellow students, the first heart that needs to be changed is your heart. That you would have compassion for them. And that change happens through prayer. God works through the prayers of his people to bring his lost sheep to himself. I saw a tweet this week, had to share it with you because it was so appropriate to the message. Tweet as, the tweet asked this simple question. If God were to answer all of your prayers, would your neighbors know Christ or would you have lots of stuff? If God answered all your prayers, would the result of that be your neighbors knowing Christ or you having lots of stuff? Paul understood the importance of prayer to his own ministry. No one can challenge Paul as one of the greatest evangelists of history, church planters, evangelism, but he depended upon the prayers of God's people. Romans chapter 15, verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Or Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Prayer is where we get a heart for the lost. And God uses those prayers to move us into the work of the mission. And that brings me to the final step, is that having, had that, having been given by grace that heart for the lost, we must pursue the lost. Jesus tells us that we are to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out the laborers. And I love the word in the original Greek that he uses there, literally, throw them out. Ask the Lord of the harvest to throw out the laborers, to scatter them to reach the scattered sheep. Reminds me of an old story I heard from the, the Protestant Reformation in England. Oliver Cromwell, who was the great uh, political leader of the, of the Puritans in the uh, Reformation in the mid-1600s, as he was trying to rebuild the nation after the Civil War, he realized that they had a severe lack of silver for currency, so that they could have a currency for, the, for the, uh, England. And so he said, where's all the silver? And so he sent out his troops to go find the silver. And they, what they found out was that a lot of the silver had been used to make statues of the saints that were in the worship places, the churches. And so 
Oliver Cromwell issued this well-remembered command, melt down the saints and get them back into circulation. Well, prayer is what melts down the saints and gets us back into circulation. The inevitable result of having that compassion for the lost that comes through prayer is that you start trying to reach the lost that you're praying for. Probably be a good idea to station deacons at the back door, at the main door, as you go out and just grab you by the shirt collar and the belt and just kind of toss you out the door just to remind you that you're being thrown out to get back into circulation with the gospel. I am another thing that I learned, a good friend of mine, one of my best friends in ministry is uh, Pastor Stan Gale. Um, and Stan wrote a book uh, called uh, Community Houses of Prayer. And our church in, in Westchester was one of the first, we were kind of a, a uh, pilot program to try these community houses of prayer out. A very simple idea to it very much in line with what we're talking about. The idea was to get a group of, say, eight people together in a small group, and as you meet together, study the role of prayer in the life of a believer, but particularly in relation to evangelism and outreach. To be studying the scriptures on this subject, and then each member of that group, of the eight members of the group, were to identify five people in their lives in their spheres of influence, people they knew from work, people they knew in their family, people they knew in their neighborhood, five people in the spheres of influence in their life that they were going to not only pray for, but they were going to report on every week when they got together in a small group. Every week they get together, they would say, here's what I'm praying for my neighbor or my coworker. Here's what I'm praying for them. And here's why I'm seeing God work. And, and then everybody would pray, all eight people would pray for everybody's list. Every week, these people are being prayed for by this group and being reported on how they're, how they're seeing God work in these people's lives. The amazing thing of that is that everybody who was involved in those community house of prayer small groups reported that they started making efforts to reach the people that were being prayed for. That was the impact of it is that they started saying, hey, I've been praying about this. I've been looking for it. I've been waiting for God to move. I'm looking to see if God's opening a door here. And all of a sudden, you start doing things you wouldn't have done otherwise. That's how it works. It happens naturally. It doesn't happen because some preacher got up and made you feel guilty because you're not doing evangelism. It doesn't happen because you're not participating, because you started participating in some program the church was doing. It happened the way that Jesus teaches us here that it happens. By praying, having your heart transformed, and then having your life transformed, which transforms your neighborhood, your workplace. That's what outreach looks like. Jesus led a Samaritan woman to faith one day. And after she went and started sharing her newfound faith in Christ with her neighbors, Jesus said to his disciples, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is the good shepherd. He is calling his sheep to himself all around us. We don't know what he's doing in the hearts of our neighbors, coworkers, fellow students. We don't know what he's doing in their hearts. But we do know that he is calling his sheep to himself all around us. 
And there is no greater joy than being used of God to help lost sheep come to know the good shepherd. There's no greater joy. And once we realize that, and once we begin to experience it, it builds upon itself. It feeds upon itself. And that's a church that is faithful and branching out and doing outreach. Evangelism begins in your hearts for the lost. Your ability to see the need and have the heart and the compassion of Christ for them. Our evangelism is going to be fueled by our prayers for the lost. And then finally, our evangelism is going to happen through relationships, not programs. Your relationships. The broken, hurting people in your life that you are praying for and then loving and reaching for the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this message from your word has been both convicting and encouraging. Convicting in that we have not been doing what you've called us to do, but encouraging in the sense that the job is not as complicated and difficult and complex as we've made it out to be. Father, please change our hearts. Please open our eyes. Help us to see that the fields are ripe for the harvest. Help us to look at our neighbors, family members, friends, co-workers, and see them as you see them. And then use us and give us the joy of the work of the harvest. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.